to the book of Acts. And if I remember correctly, we were in the eighth chapter when we cut off a couple weeks ago. And just about to see the story of the Ethiopian eunuch as Philip ministered to him. Verse 26. We're in this period of the church that just exciting things were happening. All groundbreaking sorts of ministry and the Holy Spirit was just working in an amazing way and this is certainly one example. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Now you remember Philip from Acts chapter 6 was one of the guys who was picked to be a deacon in the church. His job was to just wait on tables, to serve, make sure the widows were taken care of. But like Stephen, who was also one of those seven guys, he ends up ministering as much as he does help. And no doubt he was still involved in the food ministry, but he was also sharing the Lord everywhere he went, as, um, as did the other people who served in the church. But the angel said to him, arise and go toward the south. Now, he was in Samaria at the time, so south would have been anywhere in the southern half of Israel. But he said, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, this is desert, or this is deserted. Gaza, you hear about it a lot in the news today because the Gaza Strip is that area of Israel that is Palestinian territory. It is at the westernmost and southernmost edge of Israel along the coast there before Egypt. It borders Egypt and it borders Israel on three sides or two sides in the Mediterranean on one side. It's always been a problem and it's still a problem today. You know, currently the the world leaders are meeting, trying to find some sort of a solution to the Palestinian problem, perhaps two states or some sort of a solution. Um, but the Gaza Strip is an area where the city of Gaza was. It was all Philistine territory ultimately. And that's one reason why the Palestinians have gravitated down there because they knew that that area where the Philistines were was one of the toughest areas for Israel throughout their history. The Philistines attacked them constantly. They were supposed to take that territory. They never completely did. And so the Palestinian, so-called Palestinian people, they are not descendants of the Philistines at all. Um, they're actually Arab. But they have taken on the name of Palestinian in order as a slap in the face to Israel because they know that how disgusting uh, the Philistines always were historically. Um, by the way, it used to be that back in the 50s and 60s, they would call the whole country of Israel Palestine. And again, that was just something that goes way back as an insult. But Gaza was a city where Samson hung out a lot. It was actually the city that, remember the story when Samson went in and took the gates of the city and ripped them off and put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of a hill, just goofing around. Well, that happened in Gaza. So there were about three roads that went from Jerusalem over to the coast to Gaza. We don't know which one of these it was, but it's probably the northernmost one because that's the one that goes through most uh, uninhabited territory, whereas 
The other two roads to Gaza tend to be more in areas that were populated in those days. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia. Ethiopia, as you probably know, is a, is a country in the northern part of Africa, and a eunuch of great authority. Now, we think of eunuchs as being those who are neutered and who take care of the harem, but that was originally what it meant, but it doesn't necessarily mean that because the term came to refer to anyone who was an important advisor, um, whether or not they were, had that role with the uh, harems. And he was a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Her name probably wasn't Candace. The Ethiopians we know from archaeology and history, they would tend to name their queens Candace. They just kind of like Henry VIII. You know, it was just a, a name that they gave to all of them. So uh, we, we know of at least four Ethiopian queens that were called Candace. Um, we don't know which one of them it was. But this guy was an important advisor to her who had charge of all her treasury. So he was her accountant and had come to Jerusalem to worship. He may have been a Jew. Any Jew who lived anywhere would always make sure they would come back to Jerusalem for the feasts. Um, but Ethiopia had quite a few Ethiopian converts to Judaism. And so whether he was a, of African descent who had converted, um, there were believers in Ethiopia, both Jewish believers and Christian believers going all the way back. You remember when the Queen of Sheba came and uh, you know, met up with Solomon and it, you know, was so impressed, she gave him a lot of riches and it implies that he gave her something special which uh, there are historical uh, suggestions that what he gave her is what he gave many, many other times and that is made her pregnant. And so there are descendants, those who claim to be descendants of Solomon to this day in uh, Ethiopia. And so as a result, they took some of that faith back as well um, as baby gifts and everything else. And so, so at any rate, this guy was either a convert or he was a Jew who lived in Ethiopia. And he went and behold, this guy was uh, coming to, had come to Jerusalem and now he was leaving, he was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, the Spirit's going to tell Philip in verse 29, go overtake the chariot. And so he ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you were reading? Um, if you think of the chariots that we see on the movies, like a Ben-Hur type chariot, then you go, wow, how in the world could Philip run that fast to catch up to that chariot? Plus, running along next to the chariot and hearing what the guy is reading, um, people either come to the conclusion that this is ridiculous or that it was some major supernatural event that happened. Um, it's not necessarily either one. There were a lot of different kinds of chariots in those days, and it was very common for someone in his position to have a chariot that was just a seat with poles going through it and servants going along and carrying him. And so no doubt they're out in the desert in between Jerusalem and Gaza heading to Ethiopia. They weren't necessarily going that fast. <laughs> but Philip comes along and he hears him 
and he's reading from Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now this is from Isaiah 53. It isn't exactly the way we are used to hearing Isaiah 53. Like for instance, where, where we read it, it says, Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he smitten. Here it's a little different. The reason is he was quoting from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And actually, interestingly, and, and always like bringing this up to people like King James only type people um, who think that you should never make a different or a modern translation of the scriptures, the Septuagint was that kind of translation. And and was easier to read and was in a language that they could understand. And the Septuagint is primarily the Bible that is quoted in the New Testament. Jesus quotes heavily from the Septuagint. Paul does, Peter does, and in this case the Ethiopian was reading Isaiah 53 from the Septuagint. Just an interesting little minor point. Um, but he's reading Isaiah 53, which if you remember that whole chapter, my favorite chapter of the whole Bible, um, it's the story of Jesus prophetically before he would come. And you know, it starts out, who has believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? To grow up before him as a tender plant, a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. In other words, he's nothing special. You wouldn't see it coming. But he goes on and says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the rest of the chapter just explains what happened in graphic detail on the cross. So it just so happened that this eunuch was reading this. And, and, and so, uh, you know, Philip said, do you understand it? And the eunuch said, well, let me ask you a question. I ask you, verse 34, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself? Of, of some other man? He goes, is, is, he, is Isaiah talking about himself? Is he talking about somebody else? What is this? Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. A couple of important things to mention. The prerequisite for baptism was belief. It's why we in our church tradition, 
you know, I'm not knocking people who baptize infants or things like that. It doesn't hurt anything. Um, but baptism in the Bible is said to be for those who believe. And it's always an emphasis on believe and be baptized. And here he's going, you can be baptized as long as you really believe. And he made this profession of faith. I believe who Jesus is, that he is the son of God. And so, and he's the Messiah. And so then he was allowed to be baptized. Anyone who believes in Jesus and knows they've made that decision is qualified for baptism. But I think it's generally good to wait and baptize people when they thoroughly understand and have a faith of their own. I never, you know, sometimes people, you know, their little kids want to be baptized, and I would never turn them away because, uh, you know, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. So whatever they know, if there's a reason why they really want to be baptized, I'll try to talk to them and let them understand the significance, but I certainly wouldn't wait till someone's, you know, 13 or 15 or whatever to baptize them. I just want to know that they believe. Um, and that's the prerequisite for baptism. Now, we dedicate infants to the Lord. The kid doesn't know. Years later, they see the pictures and they say, why did you dress me up like that? And then after that, they, they know that, well, hey, we wanted everyone to know that you were a gift from God and, and you belong to him. And so that's really what um, the churches who baptize infants, that's really what they're doing is dedicating them. Um, and then sometimes they'll do confirmation or something else later to affirm their faith. Biblically, we just see it as let baptism be what baptism is supposed to be. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, you get baptized. Um, it's also, there are different debates on the mode of baptism. Some people believe that it should be sprinkling. Some people believe that it should be pouring, where they just pour a little over your head. We practice what is called full immersion baptism. Uh, we believe that you go down under the water and you come back up. It's, it has the symbolism of being buried with Christ and rising from the dead, which is really important. But this text lets us know for sure that that was their understanding of it. I mean, we already know because uh, of the fact that they always baptized in the river. Why would you need to do that? But here, the idea was, hey, look, here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? If he just was going to be sprinkled or poured, he could have done it out of his canteen that he no doubt had plenty of, but it was that full immersion baptism. This is one of the scriptures that lets us know that. Now, once he was baptized, they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. doesn't necessarily mean that he transported him magically, although it could mean that. But often the same kind of terminology is used as the Spirit just leads someone and compels them to go somewhere. But it does sound like something weird was happening just because he saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. So somehow Philip disappeared, it would seem. And then Philip was found, that is next time you find Philip, he was at Azotus. And Azotus is the Greek term for the city of Ashdod. And um, Ashdod was another city of the Philistines, about 30 miles away or so from Gaza, 20 to 30. And... Um, Ashdod, you might remember that from the Old Testament. Remember when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant? 
and they brought it back to Philistine territory because they thought it would be good luck for them. And they set it up in a temple where the god Dagon was being celebrated. And they just thought they'd line it up like another god. And Dagon's gods kept getting knocked over. And they'd set them back up and they were knocked over again. And they started thinking that was kind of weird and then all the people got hemorrhoids and then they just go, let's get this thing out of here. Well, that happened in that city of Ashdod. And so uh, he went through and he preached all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Caesarea is on the um, Mediterranean coast right about the middle of Israel. It's the center of an awful lot of things that happen in Israel. Beautiful city, just incredible ruins. If you've never been there, it's worth going to Israel just to see Caesarea. And a whole lot of biblical things, Old and New Testament, happened there. And it's just an incredible um, archaeological dig, what they've uncovered there in Caesarea, um, right on the coast of the Mediterranean. Just a, an amazingly beautiful place. So he ends up there. Now we pick up with Saul. Saul was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked letters from him for the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Here in chapter 9, we see the first account of Paul's conversion. Now Paul tells the story several times so you can cross-reference um, you know, Acts 22, Act, when he talks to the Jews in Jerusalem and tells them his, his testimony. Acts 26, as he, as he testifies before Agrippa. Um, and then Galatians chapter 1, as he tells some of the story. And you get little details from each of the accounts. But here we know he went to Jerusalem to get permission from the Jewish authorities to go persecute and arrest any Christians, that's what they called people who are of the way. Before they were ever called Christians, they were called those of the way. Um, and that's why there are still people today who refer to Christianity as being the way. Came from Jesus saying, I am the way. And so they said, we are of the way. A lot of people in church are definitely in the way. But... <laughs> That's a whole different that's a whole different thing. So he, he went to he wanted to get letters sent to the synagogues that were in Damascus. Damascus is the capital of Syria. Syria is the country that is to the north of Israel. Um, there's Lebanon on the coast and Syria just inland from there. And the historical um, kingdoms of Syria and Assyria came from this area, big city at the time. A lot of Jews lived there. There were a lot of synagogues there. And Christianity was thriving there in that area of Damascus because persecution was beginning down south. And so the people would head up north. They had a lot of relatives up there. They had contacts up there because going clear back to the 6th century BC when Israel was taken into captivity up there, um, under Nebuchadnezzar, a lot of people stayed. So there were a lot of Jews up there who were candidates for hearing the gospel. And so Saul wanted permission to go and arrest people. 
whether men or women, tie them up, handcuff them, bring them to Jerusalem. But God had something else in mind. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. He said, You're fighting against me. You are persecuting me as you are persecuting my people. By the way, that's still true today. Those who persecute believers are also persecuting and attacking Jesus himself. Takes that very seriously. That's why you really want to avoid being an accuser of the brethren. That job is already taken care of by Satan himself. Don't put yourself in the place of attacking God's people. So Jesus said, this is getting kind of hard, isn't it? And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city of Damascus, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Now, looking at, um, at the account in Acts chapter 22, and we'll see when we get to it, it sounds like they heard a sound, but they, didn't, they couldn't make out that it was a voice. So they didn't know exactly what was said, but they heard the noise, and Paul apparent, Saul apparently saw more than they saw. But Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. He was blind. But they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and he didn't eat or drink, just waiting for what God was going to do. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. No connection to Ananias, who got slain in the spirit with his wife Sapphira earlier. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. He goes, Ananias, there's a guy, here's his address, you need to go over there, he's praying and he already saw a vision that you'd be coming, he'll be expecting you. Oh, by the way, his name is Saul of Tarsus. Sometimes God tells you to do weird things and you're going, I don't know if this is God or not. So he's a good guy, but he checks. He says, uh, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Many times when God tells us to do something, we go, God, are you sure? Do you, have you thought this through? Do you realize what this could cost? Do you understand the ramifications of it? This could really backfire. And God says, I know what I'm telling you to do. Just do what I'm telling you to do. I got, got this covered. The Lord said, go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles kings, and the children of Israel. He goes, this is a guy I've picked out, and he's going to have an amazing ministry to Gentiles. You don't want that, do you, Ananias? No, 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 great. You got a guy who will do it fine. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Jesus said, 
It's not going to be easy on him. And I'm going to tell him right up front what he's in for, but that's what he's going to be doing. Ananias went his way, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, and this is to me is so touching, Brother Saul. <laughs> he took the Lord's word for it. Jesus said, he's mine. And he goes, if he's mine, then he's mine too. He's my brother as well. And that's the attitude that we certainly need to have. If the Lord saves someone, they are our brother or our sister. It doesn't matter what they've done before, what they've done since. It's brother. It's family. Oh, we'll have our differences. And you don't necessarily have to associate with everyone who's in your family. But you at least recognize that they are family. And so... He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. It was just his, his eyes were turned on and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. He stayed in that area for a while. Now, we know from uh, Galatians chapter 1 and the account there that Saul shortly after that took off and went to Saudi Arabia out in the desert and spent several years there being tutored by the Lord personally. And then he came back up to the area of Syria again before he had ever gone down to Jerusalem. But here it just tells that he... Uh, was there in Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ, the Messiah, in the synagogues that he is the Son of God, radical to them. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? See, in the synagogues they knew he was coming and they expected it was to crush Christianity and now here all of a sudden they find out, not at all. Now he's preaching Christianity. This is weird. And they, they weren't sure what to do with it. And so, uh, but Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. By sharing with them and opening the scriptures to them, they were convinced that Jesus really was the Messiah. And really the Jews in Syria were no match for someone with the experience of Saul. Most of the really serious Jews were down in Jerusalem. The ones who were up here were kind of on the fringes. And it's interesting that um, so often a work of God happens in a place where people don't know a whole lot. Sometimes people who know less are easier to be convinced of the truth because they don't have all their prejudices and everything built up against the truth. They don't have all their little pat answers and things like that. That's why so often it's a waste of time to debate with people who are well studied. It's not that you're looking for a sucker. You're looking for someone who's open to the truth. And unless something is put there to keep you from seeing the truth, when you read through the scriptures, you'd come to the conclusion, wow, this is, this is God. This is what God is doing. And so 
that was working. Of course, at this point, he was talking to Jews. He's going to end up spending most of his time as the apostle to the Gentiles because Gentiles are even more open. You don't have to unteach them a bunch of things before you could teach them the truth. But after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So this was after a long period of time. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. This probably occurred after he had been to Arabia, come back, was preaching with power, and he was convincing people. And so they're going, we got to get rid of this guy. So they hustled him out the window in a basket and lowered him down and let him get away. Brings up an interesting kind of thing that there are times when you just don't go along with whatever the authorities say. There's a place for civil disobedience. And this is the kind of example that I would say, you know, much like the people who hid Jews, like Corey Ten Boom and other people's families who, who hid Jews during the Holocaust, and you go, but wait a minute, there was an official government that was demanding that they turn them over. Well, life is more important than that. Jesus makes that point so many times in the Gospels that it's like, would you use some common sense here? Even in terms of the Old Testament law, don't apply it in such a way that's just goofy. And you're going, well, sorry, this is what the law says. No, you've got to use some common sense and realize that what God wants is peace and life and for people to be protected and sometimes that means you're going to step on some legalist rule in order to do what needs to be done to do what you know is the right thing to do. And, and this is certainly a case of that. Interesting discussion ethically, though, but um, clearly God is in favor of life. If you're interpreting his, his uh, law in a way that's going to cost somebody their life, you're probably misinterpreting it except in some rare cases where you might die to defend someone else. Verse 26, when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. He's like, hey, here I am, man. I've been having some great crusades up in Samaria, and you'd think they would have accepted him, but they were all afraid of him still. And they didn't believe that he was a disciple. They thought he was a double agent. But Barnabas, <laughs> Barnabas was the son of encouragement. He was the guy who probably, no doubt, a little naive. Um, not real critical, not real even necessarily discerning, but he was a guy who would always come to someone's side. He, Barnabas reminds me of Bill Cravenor, who just went to be with the Lord this last week. Bill was in favor of everyone. He supported everyone. The guy didn't have a negative bone in his body. Now, if everyone was like that, oh man, we would be overrun. He, you know, I was sharing at the funeral how Bill would get emails from these Nigerian pastor scams, you know, and he'd invite them to come over and he'd bring, somebody, every once in a while, he'd bring a Nigerian pastor to our church and the guy would end up leaving when he found out we weren't going to give him money. But, but he was just a guy who loved to encourage people and lift people up. And we really need people like that because most of us are so jaded and cynical that when somebody really does change, we don't trust them. And uh, so I'm no Barnabas, but Barnabas was. And uh, so he came and 
took the disciples and took him to the disciples and he said, look, man, I've seen what God's done. And uh, Jesus spoke to him and he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. So Barnabas stuck up for him and got his foot in the door. Of course, later Barnabas is going to go with Paul on his first missionary journey and take his nephew, John Mark, with him. John Mark flaked out. Naturally, Barnabas wanted to give him another chance. Paul wouldn't, and they ended up kind of splitting up over that. But you got to love a guy like Barnabas who his name means somebody who comes alongside and encourages. So Paul's speaking boldly, and he's arguing against the Hellenists. The Hellenists would have been particularly difficult because they are Jews who had already been converted to Greek life. And so they were very sophisticated and very educated and so tough nuts to crack. And so Paul would argue with them. So they tried to kill him. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So again, Paul, I think, early on probably wasn't that smooth, and so he was really making enemies everywhere he went. Later, he didn't have quite as much of a problem as that, but now he had the problem in Damascus. He comes south to Jerusalem, and the same thing, people want to kill him there, so they hustled him off to Caesarea, which, again, was this beautiful port city, and stuck him on a boat and sent him up to Tarsus, where he was from, which is in what they would call Asia Minor, what we would today designate as the nation of Turkey. So he heads off and goes to head up there. Then, verse 31, the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Good things were happening in the church all over. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country, because he was touring at the time, he also came down to the saints who dwell in Lydda, which is a little city um, inland, a little bit south of Joppa. Now, on the Mediterranean coast, you go all the way up to the top, you have Tyre and Sidon, Lebanon up above that. You come down, there's a little thing that juts out where Mount Carmel is, and if you look in your Bible maps, you can kind of see this. You come halfway down the coast, and there's Caesarea, which is on the coast. You come a little far further, there is Joppa, or what they call today Jaffa. And it's just a, a few miles uh, south, 10, 15 miles south of, of uh, Caesarea. And it was an important port city. And then you go inland and south a little bit more, and you get to the city of Lydda. And uh, it says he found a certain man named Anus, tough name, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Anus, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. So all those who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So this guy in Lydda gets saved miraculously and the reputation spread, not just through Lydda, but all the way through the land of Sharon. Sharon was, it was a name that came to mean a beautiful place, but it was actually that area all along the coast. 
It would extend from down there where Lydda is all the way up through Joppa or Jaffa, which is today Tel Aviv is right next to there, up to Caesarea, up further to Carmel. That whole beautiful coastal area was called the land of Sharon. So here Peter does this, and now the gospel is just busting out on the coast. We already saw it was busting out in Samaria, up in Syria, all the way down through Judea, and in the south as well. So word spreading. And at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. And so, again, tough names, but (laughs) Dorcas actually meant, you know, both of them meant a gazelle. So it was someone very graceful and strong, and uh, Tabitha was the Aramaic name for gazelle, and uh, the Greek name was uh, Dorcas. And she was full of good works and charitable deeds. She was just always serving. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. They washed her body, laid her in an upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was in Joppa, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And so uh, Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping. They would do that ceremonially, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. They're going, oh man, look at all the stuff she did. She was always making us things, and (coughs) we really miss her. But Peter put them all out of the room, and he knelt down and he prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, (laughs) she sat up. It's like, what? (laughs) Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, He presented her alive. Ta-da! And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. And so Peter, this happened, and obviously when you pull something like this off, after other healings, it was like, man, people are coming to the Lord like crazy. So plus the city of Joppa is really a cute little scenic village right next to the Mediterranean. And you can see why he would go, I think I'll hang around here a while. And so he stayed in the house of a guy named Simon the Tanner. Um, interestingly, the, we have a pretty good idea of where Simon the Tanner's house was there in Joppa, um, or in Jaffa. It's, again, Joppa is right next to Tel Aviv, which is the present-day political capital of Israel um, because nobody wants them to have Jerusalem be their capital. Tel Aviv is a huge city on the Mediterranean coast. Um, Joppa is a cute little fishing village, but there are a lot of traditions that have designated where Simon the Tanner's house probably was. And one of the ways that that they've figured this out is that going way back the, they would build churches wherever something significant happens, but then when the Muslims came through and conquered with their crusades, they would destroy the churches and they would always build a mosque right next to, right on the site, if they could, of the church. 
It's why they built the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount, because it would just insult the Jews, and they're all about that. And so they hated Christians as well. Um, well, the Muslims had built a little mosque right there in Joppa, and it's just a, a little ways away from a house that belonged to a tanner, that they found indications that it was a tanner. They wouldn't knock down the house and build a mosque right on top of it because the Muslims are paranoid about carcasses and things like that. So they got as close to it as they could and built it, and so Simon the Tanner's house is still there. You can go um, there whenever we go to Israel, we go by there. To me, it's a really amazing thing when you think of what happened, especially here in Acts chapter 10, at that house. Something very significant to those of us who are Gentiles. So in verse, chapter 10, verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea, remember a little north of there, called Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion, which meant he was in charge of a hundred men, of what was called the Italian Regiment. A regiment was four to six hundred people. So he was commanding a hundred of those. And it was the Italian Regiment. They had regiments of people from different places, and no doubt... These were some from Italy, from, from Rome, who were very proud of their ancestry, thought they were better than everyone else, much like Italians still do today, and <laughs> much like many people do today. But this guy was devout. He was godly, believed in God, the Jewish God, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously, that is, he made contributions to help the people, put money in the offering plate. And he prayed to God always. So he had converted to Judaism and had a faith in God. Um, didn't know about Jesus at the time, really, or he probably heard about him. But about the ninth hour, that was three o'clock in the, in the afternoon, it starts at six in the morning, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Interesting that what he had prayed and what he had given, God had taken notice of. And it's a good reminder that God sees when we give, God sees when we pray, and it means something to him. And often he responds in a special way to people who pray to him and, and give to him. And so it, it, it's also cool that God just came and spoke to him. There was nobody there in Caesarea, which was a big political capital for them, for the Roman Empire. Um, <laughs> there was no one there who could teach him about Jesus, so Jesus just had to come himself, and the Lord just came and spoke with him. It's interesting today that more Muslims are accepting Jesus than ever before. More Muslims have accepted the Lord in the last 10 years than in the last 500 years. And many of them testify that they were alone or even they were in the mosque and they just heard the Lord speak to them and just said, I'm Jesus. And I've heard that story from former Muslims over and over again. And if God has to go direct, he will. Um, Chom No, who's our brother who operates Cambodian Hope Organization in Poi Pet, um, was, a, was training to be a Buddhist priest there in Cambodia. His family had been killed by the Khmer Rouge, 
And he turned to the priest just for someone to raise him. And so they raised him, and the weekend before he was going to become a Buddhist priest, he was in the Buddhist temple, and he heard a voice saying, I'm Jesus, and I'm the real God, and you need to know me. And so he walked outside, and he looked for the first Westerner that he could find, and he said, can you tell me about Jesus? And they said, I'm here visiting a friend of mine who's a missionary. Come on. And they led him to the Lord. So God will get the job done. He loves to give people an opportunity to do it. And so every chance we can, we should try to do that. But he, you know, like Jesus told the guys at the, at the uh, triumphal entry, you know what, if these people didn't say anything, the rocks would cry out. And so God's going to get his word across. And he did it to Cornelius here. So he said, send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of them was a believer, from among those who waited on him continually. And when he had explained all these things, he sent them to Joppa. You know, in the meantime, the next day, as they were on their way, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, about noon. And typically they have a patio up on the roof, and so he went up there to pray. And he became very hungry, and he wanted to eat. And while they made ready, dinner wasn't ready yet, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven to open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild bees, creeping things, and birds of the air. In other words, all the animals that Jews were forbidden by the law from eating. And a voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, as he would often say, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And it's tough because Peter's hungry. And now here comes this sheet with lobster and ham sandwiches and all sorts of things he's not supposed to eat. And he's like, man, I'm hungry. It looks good, but I've never eaten this kind of stuff before. And uh, a voice came to him again the second time. What God has cleansed you must not call common. Happened three times. And he didn't eat it because it was just a vision, but it was taken up into heaven. Now, while Peter was wondering what in the world did this mean, the guys from Caesarea who Cornelius had sent made inquiry at the house, knocked on the door. Hey, is Peter here? They go, yeah, he's up on the roof. They called and asked whether Simon was lodging there. And Peter thought about the vision. The Spirit said to him, look, there's three guys looking for you. Go with them. Don't doubt. I have sent them. Then, verse 21, Peter went down to the guys who were sent from Cornelius, and he said, yes, I am the one you're looking for. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them. And he took some guys from Joppa to go with him. He wanted to make sure it wasn't some kind of setup. And uh, the following day, they came to Caesarea. It's a pretty easy day's walk. 
There's a road that goes all along the coast there. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. He was like, I know this guy is supposed to tell me something, so I better gather a crowd together and make this happen. So he got everyone he cared about there. And as Peter came in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter picked him up and said, stand up, I, I'm just a man. Don't, don't treat me like I'm something special. Pretty, uh, you know, a godly person always responds this way to the adulation of their fans. You know, they don't just go, yes, you're right, you should bow down. <laughs> they, people who do that um, are misrepresenting themselves and God. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. He's like, whoa. And he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. So right away he goes, okay, let me tell you guys, I probably shouldn't be here. I'm Jewish. I'm not even supposed to be in your house, much less with this whole Gentile crowd. I'm just warning you. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. He made the connection with his vision. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, what do you want? And Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in, in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer's been heard, your alms, alms are remembered, tells him the whole story. And so he says, verse 33, I sent to you immediately, and you've done well to come, I appreciate it. Now therefore, here we are all here, and we want to hear the things that were commanded to you by God. God must have given you a message, and we're here to listen. So Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He said, you know, with Jews, we're kind of funny. We just like Jews. But I am, I'm here to share something with you that is a revelation to me as well, that God wants to reach out to you. These were the first Gentiles that the gospel came to. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. To be accepted by God, that's what it comes down to. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. He goes, you've heard this stuff. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Just a short gospel message. 
He said, you guys have heard about Jesus, the miracles that he did. He was all from up in Galilee, all the way down through Samaria and into Judea and in Jerusalem. And ultimately they killed him. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And we met with him, we hung out with him, we ate and drank with him to know that he was alive, to know that he's real. And he told us to go tell people, if you believe in him, your sins will be forgiven. Just a nice, short, sweet message to tell them, okay, you want to hear it? Here's the deal. While Peter was still speaking these words, couldn't even finish his message, the whole, before the band could start playing Just As I Am or anything, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Everybody in the house, the Holy Spirit just came upon them. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter. See, he brought some Jews with him, and they were like, I can't believe Gentiles are getting saved or getting filled with the Spirit. And it says that uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnified God, just like on the day of Pentecost. Now, this doesn't mean that every time someone gets saved that they can speak in tongues. Uh, Paul makes it pretty clear that everyone doesn't have any of the gifts, not all speak in tongues. Um, speaking in tongues is certainly an evidence of being filled with the Spirit, but the real evidence of being filled with the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit, the love and the joy and the peace that, that God gives us. But certainly... Because this was the first time Gentiles were filled with the Spirit, um, in the same way that in Acts chapter 2, when the Jewish believers were filled with the Spirit for the first time, they spoke in tongues, God was trying to make a point. Does this look familiar to you? This is very similar to what happened to you yourselves. And so he, uh, uh, they it happened and they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God and then Peter said can anybody think of a reason why you guys can't be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord then they asked him to stay a few days you can imagine why um, amazing and this Acts chapter 10 is a hugely significant passage for those of us who are Gentiles. Um, those of you who are of Jewish descent, oh, you fit perfectly with God's program. He got to you first. But those of us who are not blessed with being Jewish, um, we got saved because God's love was bigger than just his chosen people. He chose a lot more than just the Jews. And originally, back when God made the Abrahamic covenant, he said, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. God chose the Jews and blessed them so that he could reach everyone else through them. And it's never about putting down the Jews like we're better. It's like, no, we get in on their program, we get to share with them. And this was a radical step in the history of the church. Um, later on in Acts 15, we'll see where um, they had a church council to decide whether or not you had to get circumcised to become a Christian. And to the great relief of the Gentile men, the answer was, no, that won't be necessary. <laughs> but, but God was spreading his program. 
And you can imagine the significance. You have a few Jews down there in Joppa. Now, all of a sudden, the gospel breaks out in Caesarea, in this incredible capital where we're going to see a whole lot of other things happening there as well. So Acts chapter 10 is a huge turn of emphasis, a change of direction, and a work of the Spirit whereby it became obvious to Peter, and then later as he and Paul testified to the rest of the church, hey, God wants to save everyone. And I'm glad that happened, and I'm glad we we have that story. It had to start somewhere, so it started right there with the least likely guy to do it, the guy who wouldn't even eat a ham sandwich, would go to a house of Gentiles and preach the gospel and see the Holy Spirit fall on them. Awesome stuff. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for filling us in on some of this early church history. How exciting it is that you poured your spirit out and it went all over the place. And later, over as we get into next week and the following week when we see how the gospel spread through Paul's missionary journeys all over Europe and everywhere else and through others down into Africa and into Arabia and everywhere, amazing how the gospel just exploded. And yet, Lord, we're aware today that there are still a lot of people in this world who don't know you and haven't even had the chance to hear the simple explanation of the gospel. And I pray that you would challenge us to involve ourselves in sharing that good news, as Peter did in the house of Cornelius, as Paul did all over Syria and down into Jerusalem and everywhere else that he went, as Barnabas did, as Peter did over on the coast, everywhere. Lord, and later on as the church just exploded all over the known world, God, I pray that we would participate in that great act of your Holy Spirit of spreading the gospel. I thank you for those um, who have responded to the call to devote their life to sharing the gospel with people who don't know you. Many of them in strange lands, different places where they're not that comfortable. I thank you that we have the privilege of supporting them as they fulfill their call, and I pray that you would just continue to provide in a great way for each of them. But help all of us to be open, to carry your gospel wherever we go, and to go wherever you send us, that we could be a part of the acts of the Holy Spirit in your church, And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing a last song.